At this time, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. This morning, our text is Philippians 4, 1 through 9. But as you guys are turning there to Philippians 4, uh, last week we ended on this note of resurrection. As Dean was um, speaking to us of this resurrection hope, he ended in verse 21. Uh, where it talked about how the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And so today we kind of transition and we go from this resurrection hope into the implications of this hope. And so follow along with me this morning as I read Philippians 4, verses 1 through 9. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, hope can do powerful things in ordinary life. Sometimes it's just the regular hope of a long vacation, looking forward to that, or the hope of a long weekend, or the hope of a job promotion with a salary increase, or the hope that your coach will eventually stop the physical conditioning. That's the story for me. When I played basketball in high school, that was always the thing you would dread after a three-hour practice of, you know, running up and down the court doing drills. The coach would say those three words, on the line, and you knew what that meant. You know, you knew, okay, we're going to do some conditioning now after three hours of practice. And so you would, you would need to run hard because you didn't know how long you're going to run for or and how long you would actually be there. But every now and then, the assistant coach who was uh, handling the drill, the conditioning drill, he would, at his left side, for those who can't see, I'm holding my left hand down at my side, and he would, he would give a couple fingers. He'd let you know, okay, you've got three more to go, right? And so he, it'd give us a clue. So then, you know, we're, we, you know, we're okay. We've got the hope. <laughs> the end is in sight. Hope, hope is in sight, you know? But the, the trick was, if we didn't run very fast, those fingers didn't go away. Those fingers seemed to just stay there uh, until we would run hard. And then the countdown would begin, you know, and we knew the end was near. Well, hope for the end of the conditioning and hope for the end of practice was life-giving. I can tell you that. 
Um, but when you have hope for something, it affects how you live in the moment, in the here and the now. Put another way, there are implications of hope, good implications that you can endure and even have peace uh, in the midst, regardless of your situation. Uh, this morning, as we come to this text in Philippians 4, verses 1 through 9, uh, we're going to see the implications of hope and how that can bring us peace, regardless of our situation, regardless of our circumstance, that we can actually endure and have peace in the midst. You see, hope can actually serve to spur us on, to spur us on to actually live with true peace now. So as Paul transitions here from the end of chapter 3, if you're looking at chapter 3, verse 21, uh, you notice he says in verse 1, he says, therefore. And that therefore is basically saying what I've just said. But specifically what Paul ended on in verse 21, he says this, speaking of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And Paul ends on this crescendo of like resurrection hope, right? And this is a man who's in prison. This is a man who's watching the people in, in Philippi. He knows that they have suffering. And he ends on this resurrection hope. And so the therefore of this statement is built off of that. And so he's basically saying to them, nothing, in verse 1, he's saying, nothing should sway you from the sure foundation of the resurrection hope you have in Jesus Christ. In other words, it will happen. It is guaranteed. And so this hope is therefore not only a cause for joy because it awaits us, but it's also a call for action. And specifically here in the first few verses, Paul is calling them to action, and he's specifically calling them to the pursuit of peace, specifically in conflict, the pursuit of peace. How so? Well, look with me at verse 1, and as Paul opens this up, he shows first how peace comes from this motivation of love. I think if we bypass verse 1, we miss Paul's incredible heart. Look at verse 1. There's like six indicators in here of his love for them. He says, my brothers whom I love, long for, <clears throat> my joy, my crown, my beloved, all these indicators that show his deep affection for them. And so it's no wonder that out of that love that it overflows and he's saying, Yodia, Syntyche, like reconcile, agree in the Lord. It's something that would flow naturally from him to say, yes, agree in the Lord. Work through this conflict. Now these, these two women, Yodia, Syntyche, were part of the church in Philippi. We don't know a whole lot about them. We do know some things that they labored alongside Paul in the gospel. You can see that in verse 3, uh, in order to proclaim the gospel. They were noble women, and some kind of disagreement had developed, maybe about kingdom work. We're not sure exactly what the situation was, but something was going on, and they were in disagreement. And it was so serious, that, uh, and it had gone on so long, that actually Paul had heard about it, which is a big deal. Right? Because these are not the days of texting, email, and phone calls. Right? And so if Paul's hearing about it, this must be a pretty big deal. And even more so, it's gone on long enough that Paul is actually calling them out in the letter by name. Calling the two of them out of the whole church in Philippi. He's calling them out. But I want you to see something. He's not shaming them. Right? He's not browbeating them, so to speak. 
but he's actually, he has, he has respect and great love for them. You see that kind of affectionate language. He calls them my fellow workers later on in verse, verse 3. But he calls them to agree in the Lord. He wants them to return to a harmonious disposition toward one another so they can get back to working together as a team. He calls them to agree, but not just agree in general. Do you notice that? He's not saying just agree. He's saying agree in the Lord, which that's very instructive for us because they, what Paul's doing, he's putting up front and center, not just agree, but agree in the Lord. Who should be at the center? Who should be the standard and the focus? And it's supposed to be the Lord. Why is Paul emphasizing this? Well, we probably know when we've gotten into our own disagreements that sometimes it goes from charitable and refining. Sometimes they shift, don't they, into destructive and divisive. Things can happen that way in our disagreements. You see, pride can enter in. Whatever the original issue was, it was maybe it was worthy of discussion, worthy of wrestling through, but it had become so important, so crucial, that it had become like the main thing. And they were no longer, they lost their focus. And so he calls them to agree and agree in the Lord. That is, I think, what happens a lot of times in disagreements. You know, pride enters the room, humility leaves. We want to be right. We don't want to look like we can't make a good argument or that our argument doesn't hold up. We can become entrenched. It's easy for those things to go on and pretty soon Right, It's no longer about agreeing in the Lord. It's about <clears throat> agreeing with me, agreeing with me. And that's when those things happen, that's where sometimes we can make it such an issue. We can take something that's important. We make it so important that if you don't align with me, if you don't agree with me, that then I pull away and I don't want to have a relationship with you. I remember when we were, uh, when I was pastoring in Arizona, our church went through a hard time sor- shortly after I got there uh, to such a degree that the pre- the commi- a commission of presbytery needed to come in and actually sit down with the officers, sit down with all of us because of the conflict that was going on. And I'm very thankful for these men because as they came in, rightly so, where they started was before we talk about the issues, and we'll talk about the issues and what they are, is let's reframe and reorient. Let's focus here. And so they brought to us scripture, brought to us God's word. What a novel idea, right? To sit down and to say, remember who you are in Christ. Remember how conflict works. Remember how the Bible talks about it. And for us, it was a great corrective. I think we need that from time to time. It was a helpful refocus for us. And so Paul here, he exhorts these women to agree in the Lord. But he doesn't leave them to work on it by themselves. Yes, there's work that the two of them are supposed to do, but he doesn't leave them alone. He appeals to someone else, and you see this in verse 3. You see this with some of your translations might say uh, syzygous, or maybe you have a note that says it means good yoke fellow. Whether it was an actual... Uh, name of someone, or maybe Paul's just referring to this person, that he has this character quality. Whatever it was, Paul is appealing to this person, this man in the church, to enter into this situation. 
Paul is asking someone in the church to enter in to bring peace, to bring agreement in the Lord. Whoever he is, he clearly has some kind of authority, some kind of peacemaking ability, or some kind of connection even to this situation. He's being called upon to intervene and to bring reconciliation. Conflict of this level, yes, it needs the one-to-one of the two people who are involved in the conflict. But yet it had risen to such a level that mediation, arbitration is needed. And so think about what Paul is doing here. What's overflowing is he's speaking to them. He's encouraging the two of them to agree in the Lord, but then he also appeals to someone else to help them, help these dear sisters in Christ to agree in the Lord. And it's a beautiful picture because it goes back and we see Paul's heart again that overflows, which motivates him to call them to peace. This resurrection hope, this resurrection hope that's laid up in heaven for him, it spurred Paul on. Because think about Paul's situation in prison. It's spurring him on to say, hey, work through this conflict. Agree in the Lord. And in light of this, right, that's a picture for us because of our future resurrection hope to work through conflict. This ultimate hope should encourage us to pursue peace in conflict. But I think many times we hold back, don't we? We're hesitant. Maybe some of us want to hide and run away from it. Maybe some of us want to get aggressive and really get after it. But how can we actually move forward in love, kind of like Paul is doing here, to pursue peace? Well, one of the things we can do is remember you and I and what we were before we were followers of Christ. To remember that we were originally estranged from our Heavenly Father, and for good reason, right? Because of sin, we wanted nothing to do with him, and his full wrath was upon us, rightly so, for our sin. But what did he do, right? Isn't that the beautiful thing? What did he do? He moved toward us. He moved toward us. He initiated. And Jesus Christ comes, takes on a body, humbles himself. He's God, but he takes on flesh, humbles himself, comes and lives among us as people, a sinful people. And he keeps the law perfectly. And then in the end, it's, he goes to the cross being punished as if he had broken that very law when in fact you and I were the lawbreakers. And he does that for us so that we could be reconciled to him so that we can know real peace, true peace, true reconciliation. That's an incredible picture because we didn't want him He had to move toward us, and he had to do it. And it's with this understanding then that true thankfulness, it can well up. It can well up in our hearts and minds so that we will actually pursue peace with others. Well, Paul's love for them because of this sure hope propels him forward to call them to pursue peace. And this peace can even be had in the midst of difficulties. That's where Paul moves next in verses 4 through 7. Paul moves next where he shows basically how we can have this protection of peace, even in difficulties. Not only does he call them to pursue peace, but we can have this protection of peace even in the midst of difficulties. How so? Paul says in verse 4, he starts out saying, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And Paul's saying this right on the heels of encouraging them to conflict or to resolve their conflict. 
This was definitely dear to Paul's heart. And so he's encouraging them that even though it's close to your heart to rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. But you notice he says, in the Lord again. Not only agree in the Lord, but rejoice in the Lord. In other words, with Christ as your focus. Rejoice in him. As Christians, we are united to Christ. He is in us. We are in him. That's the language Jesus himself uses in John 15. And we can rejoice in hard circumstances. And maybe your question is, really? It's really hard to do. I agree. It is hard to do. But think about Paul for a moment. As he's writing this letter, he's writing from prison. He doesn't know if his life is going to be spared or taken at the next moment. He's writing to the church at Philippi who he loves greatly, but he knows they also are suffering. If you look at chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, you can see that. And you have Paul who knows his own sin, knows the sin of the past, knows his sin struggles of the present. And here's Paul. He's encouraging them to rejoice. Even though things can seem dark and dreary, he tells them to rejoice. And you and I, we can We can actually rejoice with our focus on Christ. We can actually have joy. We can actually have joy. And it's easy for us to maybe say this truth. Maybe you're thinking, well, it's easy for you to say, Josh. That's a hard thing to live out. It is a hard thing to live out. But I think what happens many times, and you probably have found this, is that we don't realize how our thoughts, our feelings our actions, how they've been actually tainted with sin. So much so that we find it hard to actually rejoice unless our situation, our circumstances are good, unless they're favorable, right? When God answers a prayer and does something great in your life, right, we overflow and go, thank you, Lord, thank you, Jesus. And it's easier to do it then. But it's hard when you're struggling, suffering, facing a difficulty, to say and to think and to feel that I actually have a true joy in my life. Now, what I'm not saying is, I'm not saying that those people at Surfside, for example, right, should just put on a happy face despite the building falling down and the death and the life that is lost. I'm not saying that at all. But actually, it means that in the hardest of circumstances and situations, we can take our thoughts to the Lord, allowing him to shape and to mold us so much so that what comes out of us is a real acknowledgement of this is where I am. This is hard. This is tough. But yet it sits on this solid foundation of faith. Like think about Paul, for example, sitting in that prison, but yet he overwhelms that he can actually say rejoice, that he can actually have joy. Paul is showing us something. He's showing us a clue that, wait a minute, To have joy doesn't mean I'm happy, clappy all the time, even though things suck all around me. It means that I have something. I sit on this bedrock firmness of faith because of a real future that awaits me. I have a strong and steady steady rock upon which I stand, and that is Christ. You see, when Jesus' words abide in us and influence the way we think, We can acknowledge our situation, and we can say, yes, this is what's going on, but this I know. We can say, I can rejoice now 
even now, because I know this about the Lord. As we think about him, we let his words influence us. We can find it easier to rejoice, and that can help bring peace in the here and now. But what perhaps is probably the biggest protection for us when it comes to having peace is prayer. And that's where Paul moves next in verse 6. Look at verse 6. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You see, Paul knows that difficulties, struggles, they can breed anxiety. Now, maybe it's the conflict that's going on in the church or other things, but Paul hits us with this command, but he also hits us with the antidote. He doesn't leave us alone. If, you, if you've been walking with the Lord for long, you know that what I'm saying to you isn't conceptually new, but maybe it's practically hard to live out. I take for granted sometimes, and I fail many times in my relationship with the Lord. The Lord wants relationship with me. I have his ear. He wants to hear from me especially in difficulties. But maybe you struggle as well in that relationship. Sometimes I feel like I've got communication problems in my relationship with Jesus. And I need him. You know, one of the Psalms that have been impacting me a lot lately in probably the past year, the past year and a half, has been Psalm 22. And some of you know this Psalm because this is a Psalm that Jesus quotes on the cross My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But sometimes we miss that, wait a minute, David said this in real space and time, and he prayed this prayer to the Lord. He started out with a real earnest plea saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Taking this to the Lord. And if you look through this psalm and you look deeply, you'll notice that David, he not only tells the Lord his situation, not only tells the Lord, this is what my enemies are doing, but he also tells the Lord, this is what it's doing to me mentally. This is what it's doing to me physically. And it's an amazing, it's been a very instructive psalm for me because it helps me go, yes, I can go to the Lord in this way. I can say, Lord, this is what it's doing to me right now. I have this tension in my back that I can't get rid of. Lord, this is what it's doing to me right now because I'm afraid and I feel that. Lord, help me. And you go to him claiming his character and saying, will you take this? Or will you act? Will you listen? But you do it with a posture of faith. Now we know this, right? But so many times we get caught up. We get caught up in our own situation, don't we? Our own anxiety, our own fears, our own doubts, our own worries, right? And we become so self-focused that we don't go to the antidote, which is prayer. Going to him, asking him for things, and asking him for things with thankfulness. Thankfulness is an incredible thing because it reorients our minds and gets us thinking off of ourselves and onto what actually is God doing? What has he done It takes us from, I must have this, I must have this in order to survive. And it takes us from that to, while I don't have this, I will trust you for what I don't understand. 
right? Because we don't always understand. But a beautiful thing happens when we practice and live this way. When we live with this kind of rejoicing, this kind of prayer, Paul tells us that something will come, and that's called peace. Paul says peace from God or peace of God, verse 7. And Paul says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And Paul says this is what results from a life that combats anxiety and difficulties this way, using those tools, those weapons of rejoicing and prayer. It helps you fight against this. It helps you have this peace. And this is a hard peace to explain, but some of you have known that peace. You've known in crazy situations where everything around you says you should be panicked right now and worried, and for some reason you have a strange sense of peace that just holds you, that just holds you and keeps you. And it doesn't mean things you're happy. It doesn't mean things aren't right around or things are right around you but it holds you, and you've got this strange sense of just this peace. This peace is real. It's protective, and you know what it does? It guards our hearts. It guards us from having destructive thoughts, attacking ourselves or turning away from God. It gives us peace. Instead, it will encourage us. Instead of leading us away from Jesus, it encourages us to take our thoughts to Jesus. This peace, it's a real peace. And it originates from God. It's one that he purchased and he has given to his people. I'll read a few verses in a few moments, but Jesus talked about this with his disciples, about my peace I give to you. It's a real peace that he gives to us. It's like a soldier guarding the door of our hearts, protecting our hearts from damaging feelings and our hearts and, and damaging thoughts. And it helps us fight the fears and our doubts. Do you remember our Savior, Jesus Christ? Do you remember him in the garden the night he was betrayed? Do you remember him going into the garden of Gethsemane? He tells his disciples to stay. And then he goes a little further with Peter, James, and John. And then he tells them to stay, but to watch and to pray. And then Jesus goes a little further, right? And then he breaks down. And you see in that moment, fully God, fully man, struggling, suffering, feeling something that we could never feel to this magnitude. And yet he had just told his disciples a chapter earlier that my peace I give to you. But here he is going to his heavenly father in prayer. And do you remember his prayer? He said, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And if you remember, he prayed this three times. And that's instructive for us. Not only is Jesus an example, but Jesus is in that moment. He's really, there's a real struggle going on, but yet he, we wouldn't say he doesn't have peace. He had peace. But Jesus is not just an example. He told his disciples these words. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome 
the world. Jesus is our peace. His presence of peace in our lives, it can help us, it can protect us in any and every situation, even though it is hard and it is bad. So Paul then, he has told us about the pursuit of peace. He's told us about how we can really have that protection of peace. But then lastly, the practice of peace. These last two verses, Paul is basically telling us to think and to do, to reflect and to take action. And this may sound strange that we actually need to practice attaining peace, but that's exactly what Paul is telling us to do. He's just kind of like how we go and we work out so that we have a healthy body. We need to practice We need to reflect on things and then to put them into action. That's what Paul is saying here in these last verses. His list is not exhaustive, but it is comprehensive. Look at verse 8. He says this list. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, anything, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You see, you and I, we can have a peace through reflection, through thinking about these things. But the hard thing is to do the work of thinking (laughs) because it feels like you're doing nothing, right? Just sit there and think, especially when all of us are probably doers. We want to take action. We want to do something. We think, well, if I just sit and think, that's not really doing anything. That's inactivity. It feels like that. At least it feels like that. It can feel like that for me. I was sharing this. I get together with um, a couple pastors. Oops. Sorry. I get together with a couple pastors um, every month or so, and we, were, uh, we, we get together. We pray for one another. We talk about what's going on. And uh, I was sharing my desires and my want for something along these lines, you know, wanting this kind of time for reflection And uh, I remember the question he asked me, one of the guys asked me was, how much time do you set aside during the week to do this? And I don't mean on your day off. I mean, how do you work this into the rhythm of your pastoring? And I said, well, not really. That stings. That hurts. I hate saying it before you right now. But it's true. And in that time... I can easily let the task, the to-do, the urgent, to drive that special time away. Aside from a quiet time, that time to actually reflect and to think, which is so healthy, I let that slip away. You see, it's easy when maybe you feel physically tired or emotionally tired, and and you go to a different place of your peace, quote-unquote. Maybe it's the peace of numbing, the peace of self-medicating. Maybe it's the peace of escaping. Those, all those kinds of things, or distraction with things that aren't necessarily wrong. Media, screen time, food, drink, sex with the one you're married to, relationships even. All those things are good, but yet sometimes we go to those things trying to make that our peace instead of going to the Lord who is the God of peace. And we know that when we go there and we numb and we distract and we self-medicate, that 
It doesn't solve it. It comes back. Paul is telling us to reflect on these things. And if we reflect on these things, then it leads to action. And Paul specifically puts himself front, uh, forward. He says, basically he's saying, imitate me. What you have seen in me, what you've seen me do, basically imitate this. And that's a hard thing to say. Uh, I can't imagine you or I probably sitting there and saying, you know, imitate me. No one lives a 100% consistent with their worldview. Everyone fails at their worldview and living consistently with it. We all do. We're inconsistent. But yet, anyone who is striving to live for Christ and is maturing in Christ is worthy of imitation. You can probably think in your mind right now, those in your life who have walked before you, pointing you to Christ, imitating Christ, and you've watched their life and you have imitated it and seen them live in godly ways. And Paul is saying, imitate what you've seen in me, reflect upon. Because Paul's promise for them is that if you reflect on these things and put what you see into practice, the God of peace will be with you. That's a promise. As you spend time reflecting upon and putting these things into action, the God of peace will be with you. But how can this be? Well, think about this. Think about the one. Reflect on the one who is your resurrection hope. Is he not the one who is true? Is he not the one who is honorable? Is he not the one who is just, who is pure, who is lovely, who is commendable, who is excellent and praiseworthy? Think upon him and who he is and what he has done and then all that you have learned and received and seen in others, let that point you to Jesus Christ, who is that perfect representation. You see, we, as followers of Christ, we have a real guaranteed future resurrection hope guaranteed for us that we're just waiting for its final fulfillment. And because of this, Paul is telling us we can actually have peace even in the midst of of hard and difficult circumstances going on around you, you can still have peace. Why? Because ultimately, I love how Paul draws this out, the God of peace is with you. Some of you may have remembered or may remember the story back in 2018 of an assistant coach in Thailand and his soccer team. Uh, you might have remembered this where they went out after a practice and it's common in there to go to the caves and, you know, hike inside the caves. And they went when it wasn't the uh, monsoon season quite yet, so they wouldn't get trapped inside with the water, rising water levels. But for some reason, uh, it rained really hard that day. It was a really wet time, and they went in, and they got caught because the water levels rose, and they got trapped inside. And there were uh, 12 of them trapped inside. In the end, they ended up being trapped inside for 18 days, and you may have remembered the news reports, but, I mean, this, was, this became an international event. You know, there was all kinds of military and medical and rescue divers. And if you remember, um, one diver actually died in the process of the rescue, and then another diver died after it due to, like, a infectious blood, um, some infection in his blood. But in the end, they ended up rescuing all these boys who were in this cave, as well as their coach, but one of the things that came out of this was the story of the assistant coach. 
Um, the assistant coach uh, took care of them in all kinds of ways. He actually had some food with him. And so during that time, he gave food to the boys and he helped them actually learn how to catch drips of water coming from the ceiling and don't drink this muddy water at the floor, you know, that was, that was puddling around them. Uh, he taught them how to meditate. I know he's a Buddhist, so he was teaching them how to relax and to meditate and to save their energy. And in the end, all of them were rescued. It's an incredible story. Maybe your situation, maybe your circumstance, it may feel like you are trapped in this cave in the dark and that there isn't much hope of rescue. But I want you to remember something, that in the dark, you are not alone. That's what Satan wants us to believe many times. I'm alone in here. Don't forget, Jesus, your Savior, is with you. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff. He's there with us in the midst. And he is our peace. And one day, you and I will be ultimately delivered from whatever that darkness is, whatever that difficulty is. And maybe we will experience several, many deliverances in our life before that time, but one day we will be with him in his glorious presence forever. We have a sure eternal hope because of Christ. Therefore, we can have true peace, not looking to ourselves, but looking to the God of peace who is with us and who's in us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and even as we think about you being the God of peace. We know that many times our hearts are noisy. Our hearts are distracted. Our hearts won't settle down. But Father, you are the God of peace. And we ask you to grant us peace in any and every circumstance. A peace that does pass all understanding because it looks like we should be flipping out right now but yet we feel steadfast, strong, and peaceful within. Father, we need your peace, and we ask that you would give that to us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.